I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 18 and 19. There should be a Bible in the pew in front of you, or you can open up an app on your phone. Follow along as we unpack John 18 and 19. And while you're doing that, as I was thinking about preparing for this message, doing some research on the text, I was reminded of a Facebook message that I received back in 2013 from an atheist friend of mine. And he sent me an article. It was an opinion piece from CNN, uh, opinion uh, piece from CNN, entitled "Why I Raise My Children Without a God" by a woman named Deborah Mitchell. And she was from Texas, you know, deeply situated in the Bible Belt, surrounded by Christians. And she felt compelled to share with fellow atheists like her and let the world know why it was that she not only wasn't going to raise her kid or kids in the Christian faith. But while she was actively also opposed to letting any influence reach her kids at all, kind of like you, if you're a Christian here today, might want to shield your own parents from atheistic worldview, she was going to share her or uh, protect and keep her kids safe from a Christian worldview. And she lists out seven reasons why she does this, and the majority of these reasons had to do with the issue of suffering in the world. And she argued, as many of us have wrestled with, maybe you're wrestling with this right now, why or how could a loving God allow so much suffering and evil happen in this world? Murders and death and and things that seem so out of control. Where is God in the midst of all this? And as she wrestled with this, as she came to her own conclusions, she ultimately came to understand and believe that as a result of her uh, atheistic belief, she believed that we as human race do not have free will. She said it's impossible for us to have free will because if we had free will, certainly we would rise up as humanity and do what's right and bring justice into this world. But instead, she comes to this conclusion. The very end of her article, she writes, we are just a very, very small part of a big, big machine. And the influence we have is minuscule. We must accept the realization of our insignificance. Now, what somebody like Mitchell is really appealing to is a theological, I'm sorry, a philosophical principle that's been going on for about the last, I'd say, 75 years called determinism. And determinism works like this. It's based on the principle that there is no God, therefore there is no uh, in unique design for humanity that over a span of billions of years, we as human beings, we've evolved. And as part of that evolution process towards survival, our brains have essentially tricked us into thinking that we have choice, but it's really a survival technique so we can make it in this world, in this dark world in which we live. And so applying that principle to your lives today, let's say that afterwards you go out with your family, you go out by yourself to dinner, and you're sitting down at the place, you open up the menu and you say, I think the chicken looks good. Determinism says you, in fact, did not choose that chicken, but you have a genetic, in, uh, in, uh, genetic thought going through your mind that's telling you to eat chicken for your survival. Do you see the difference? Those of you who are married here today or have a relationship in a relationship of some form, maybe you thought that you chose your spouse because they are attractive or they're funny or because they're a Christian and you put all those things together and you got married. Determinism says, no, you in fact did not make that choice. You live under the illusion of choice. But in fact, this is just your genetic DNA playing out and you are doing what you're hardwired to do, which is survive in this world and then bring about the survival of the human race until who knows how much longer we have. That's determinism. Now, I know some of you are already bored to death and you're like, what is this guy doing up here talking about this philosophical stuff? Okay. 
In fact, Scott Abel here uh, graduated from undergraduate, our other pastor in philosophy. He's the only one that's leaning in, like, give me more. (laughs) I can't stop. Here's the point. If you conclude this to its end position, if you take determinism from its very beginnings and you go out and you think through the ramifications in this world, it means that there's actually no such thing as love. Because love is just a biochemical thing that's going on in your brain. Your brain is tricking you into thinking that you love the person sitting next to you or your children or your parents so that you won't abandon them, so that you'll stick with them. And ultimately, the end goal of determinism is this. There's no such thing as any absolute. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute morality because morality is, again, another human construct that we figured out over time in order to survive And according to determinism, we as a human culture get to pick and choose what is right and what is wrong, and it varies from culture to culture, person to person, country to country, time period to time period. There's no moral absolutes. Now, you probably have figured out by now that as you think about the Bible that is in your hands and you listen to the words that Pastor Abel just read for us, that is a 100% absolute contradiction to the claims of Scripture. We see in our text here today that Scripture is claiming absolute truth, that Jesus is the absolute Savior, that he has the absolute last say on all things morality speaking. The two are in contradiction. As we learned last week, both worldviews could be wrong, but both worldviews at the same time cannot be 100% right. So we're going to do today by looking at this text and the two claims that we see in the text. Number one, that Jesus claims to be king. And number two, that Jesus claims to be savior. We're going to make sense, try to, of the two competing worldviews and then ultimately, hopefully, prayerfully answer the question that Pilate poses for us today. What is truth? So let's dive in. Open up your Bibles. We're looking at John chapter 18. And first, we'll spend some time looking at the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders who have brought Jesus to trial. And it says that they lead Jesus, or they led Jesus, from the house of Caiaphas, he's the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled, but so that they could eat the Passover. And let's pause right there. This is important to understand because what John is showing us, he's pointing out to us that the religious leaders appear to be on a very high-level moral plane. They're on the high ground of morality. God's law says that just like he separated the Israelites from the people back in the day, they are to be a separate people to not go into the Gentiles' homes so that they wouldn't be defiled so they could eat the Passover according to the law. And these leaders are doing that. They're following the law. You know, gold star for them. Good job. But then as we keep reading, there's a little bit more to it. It says that they wait for Pilate to come outside to them, and Pilate says, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you, which is really not an answer. They don't think much of Pilate here. They think they can just kind of sneak this thing in, and Pilate doesn't fall for it. He says to them, okay, fine. You take him yourselves, and you judge him by your own law, by your own moral construct. To which the Jews reply, well, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, this is an interesting statement. It's partially true. The Jewish people didn't have the authority to crucify someone, 
But if you read the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, there is a lot of allowance for Jewish people under Jewish law to exercise capital punishment. And the Jewish leaders were not afraid to do that. We see in John 8, Jesus intercepted the uh, death of a woman who had been caught cheating on her spouse. She had committed adultery. These same exact religious leaders had stones in their hand, and they were going to violently end this woman's life because she had broke the law. So what they're doing here is really manipulating the law. They are taking the moral high ground, and they're saying they're appealing to uh, the moral construct of Scripture. They're saying, God, you are my king, and I'm going to live under your authority and your reign. But when it came down to Jesus, they circumvented the law. They changed the law to meet their own needs. And so they were only really giving lip service to the law. They weren't really living under the authority that we see here in Scripture, which brings us to a point of application for us here today. We're now 2,000 removed from the moral law, from the foundation of the law. We live in a culture that is not Christian. And yet we see the principles at work here in our own culture. Just this last week, I was reading the paper that the Senate in Colorado passed a law that's being called the most aggressive abortion law in the country. And as a result of this law, a woman can have an abortion all the way up to uh, 40 weeks of pregnancy, And in addition to this law, if a baby is born during the abortion, if the abortion fails, then the mother has the choice. The doctor will ask the mother, do you want to end this life of this baby or do you want the baby to live? Now, I understand this is an extremely complicated issue, and I'm a man, and I don't have a lot of understanding of what it's like to be a female in this world, but what I like to do for the sake of us thinking deeply about these two different worldviews is let's use some critical thinking skills this morning and break down the rationale for the law that's in place. Because on one hand, what lawmakers are trying to do is a noble thing. They're trying to elevate, to raise up the life of a woman who we know from reading history, maybe even experiencing in our own life, in our country, in our state even, women have not always been elevated. They've not been held to the same uh, level that men have been held to. And so what lawmakers are trying to do is noble in the sense that they're trying to elevate the role of women, not diminish the role of women. That's good. That's biblical. We look in Scripture, we know for a fact that God has extreme value for all creatures, but he's extreme value for women. It says in Psalm 139, you were created, knit together in my mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. Our entire theology as Christians rests on the fact that God is a loving father who loves his children. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, if you're a male in the room today, Especially if you're married, if Paul says this, that we are to treat our wives, to treat women with the same dignity and respect that Christ himself treats his bride, the church, we are to give our lives for our wives. That's an elevated role that we're supposed to play as men. So that's good. But as we apply the same moral principle that's being used to create this law, we see a contradiction. Because in order to elevate the role of a woman of a woman to this degree in that regard you have to diminish you have to devalue the life of a child you have to somehow be able to say that this person over here deserves to allow her genetic makeup to go forward but this person over here doesn't allow it where is the moral ground if we don't have something to objectively base our decisions on like we have in scripture like we have in looking at jesus our king what happens is you replace the role of god in society with 
the individual choice of a person, and there's a conflict there because how do we know, how do we possibly know which life is more valuable, hers or the child? We don't know. Now, that's our culture. Let's go even deeper into our hearts. What about you and I? Do we ever fall into that trap of seeing Jesus as king in some areas of our life, but not king in others? Do we ever look at scripture and pick and choose what we choose to believe, what we want to apply to our lives and reject others? A great example of this in 2015, when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of gay marriage, I had a friend, he's a Christian, he was online, he was getting in arguments with other people, especially gay people, and he was uh, putting Bible verses out there to uh, some of his gay friends and saying, this is what I believe and this is what, how you should believe because I believe this, and he was condemning behavior. The problem was he at this moment in time was not married, he was living with his girlfriend, sleeping with his girlfriend, which scripture, by the way, has something to say about that. In that moment, he was being very hypocritical, choosing to bow to Jesus as king in one area of his life, but not choosing to bow to him in another area. He was picking and choosing which parts of the Bible he was going to listen to and apply to his life. And as a result, people on the other side of the argument didn't see Jesus. They saw someone who wasn't living by their own standard. You see, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. As we go even deeper in this conversation, let's apply it to our own hearts. Is there anywhere, anywhere in your own life, in your own heart, where you might apply one law of Scripture, one moral authority, but not another? It's, it's so easy, isn't it, to kind of pick and choose how we choose to uh, obey Scripture. We might look at Scripture and say, hey, I think that lying is bad because I want my spouse or I want my friends to tell me the truth. So yeah, lying's bad. Stealing, I don't want people to, to steal my stuff, but sexuality? Come on, God. That's so 2,000 years ago. It's so easy for us, isn't it? So what do we do? Where do we turn when we want to live under the authority of the king, but we find ourselves failing and we can't seem to do it? Well, thankfully, Jesus presents himself and scripture presents Jesus not just as a king, but as a savior. And this is so important for us to understand, especially if you are a brand new Christian, if this is new to you and you're sitting here in the pews going, what church did I just walk into today talking about this stuff? You have to understand before you can see Jesus as king, you have to be able to see Jesus as your savior by faith, somehow grasp that Jesus loves you. And we see it in our text here today. Look at finally the encounter that we have with Jesus and Pontius Pilate. It's fascinating to me that Pilate is the most important and powerful person in Jerusalem at this time. He outrakes King Herod. He's a direct ambassador of Caesar himself. He has access to the treasury. He can wield the power of the military whenever he wants to. He's the most powerful person, and yet we see him acting not very leader-like in this text. He's conflicted. He's not confident. He doesn't know what to do. At the very beginning, when the Jewish authorities bring Jesus to him, he instantly dismisses it. He says, no, you deal with it. Then the leaders bring another uh, charge against Jesus, and he brings Jesus into his private chambers, and he says, Jesus, you know, is this true, what they're saying about you? And Jesus doesn't answer it. And so then he goes back out to the people a third time. He then goes back to them a fourth time with a known robber, Barabbas. He's a known criminal. He was going to die. And he thinks to himself, surely the people will choose Barabbas over this guy who has clearly done nothing. That doesn't work. He goes back into Jesus a fourth time and he says, do you not understand who I am? I am 
in charge here. I have the power to free you, and I have the power to crucify. In other words, he's giving Jesus for the fourth time a get-out-of-jail-free card, but Jesus doesn't take it. And at this point, we've got to ask ourselves why. Think about this. If you were falsely accused of a crime, what would you do? What length would you go to to exonerate yourself, to prove that you were innocent? A couple weeks ago, I was watching a great movie called Just Mercy. It's a movie about a black man in Alabama who was falsely imprisoned, an attorney who flies down there and actively, daily, by the hour, seeks to free this man from a crime he didn't commit. He's passionate towards exonerating an innocent man. That's the length at which we would go to if we were innocent. But you don't see Jesus doing that, do you? Instead, we see where his heart is is as our Savior in verse 37. Let's go there now. Pilate says to him, so you are a king. And Jesus says, well, you say that I'm a king, meaning an earthly king. But Jesus says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then Pilate asks his famous question, well, what is truth? How can we possibly know what truth is? And then instantly, we're drawn into the entire narrative of Jesus' life. And in John 8, 23, Jesus says this about truth, that the words of his are truth. And if you believe in that word, that truth will set you free. What are his words? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He writes, For all in the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. My friends, what this means is that truth, according to Jesus, is nothing less than the very love of God that he has for you. Jesus would stop at nothing so that you could know how much you are dearly loved and valued and that your life has purpose and this world is not without meaning. This world has great purpose brought on by the love of a Savior who would give anything to have you be his friend, to do anything to have you be in his arms because he loves you so dearly. You see, he went to the cross for you. And if you believe that, if by some miracle of the Holy Spirit, by faith you can grasp, even if it's this much that Jesus loves you, then this changes everything. Not only does it give us purpose in this life, it allows us to walk through our days with a clear conscience because we know that we can make decisions and we can base our morality not on something that's within us that might be conflicted, that might be a contradiction, but we can base it on the solid truth of God's word formed out of the love of Jesus Christ. What it means for us today, if you've been convicted by something that was said today, the law doing its work to, to break down our hearts, and you feel, how could God possibly love me and forgive me? I've done this and this and this. Because of the love of Jesus, you can turn to him because of his death and his resurrection, and you can know without a shadow of a doubt that the second you ask Jesus for forgiveness, he meets you there, he wraps you in his arms, and he loves you, and he forgives you. And then, once you understand that, you can stand beneath his kingship. You can stand under his authority. You can begin to ask him, God, I'm sorry, I, I messed up today. I didn't live under your kingship today. Would you help me do better? And he promises to do that. 
and underneath his authority as king, we can go out into this world and not throw truth bombs at other people, but love them the way Jesus loves us. We can go out into the world, we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ, bring the fragrance of Jesus himself, loving people, having conversations with people who are different than us that might even oppose us, but we can do it in grace and truth and love because we stand under the authority of the king, a king who gave himself, who gave up his kingship for us. We have Jesus as our king, but more importantly, we live with Jesus as our Savior. I'd like to invite you now as we close to go to our Savior in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today uh, maybe conflicted, perhaps confused, perhaps uncertain, Lord, how it is possible that you would give everything to win us to you. You would send your own son, Jesus, to be the savior of the world. And God, we want to live under your authority. We want to live under your kingship, but Father, you know how hard it is for us to do that, and so we thank you today for the reality that, yes, we are your subjects in your kingdom, but by your grace, we are yours through the death and resurrection of our savior, Jesus. I pray today for anybody in the room who is struggling with trusting in your grace. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, open up their hearts, help them to receive the love that you offer them in this very moment. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.